Welcome to episode six of the Via Emmaus podcast, where we'll be discussing the Old Testament portion of this week's reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Today, we're going to begin in Genesis 32 and make our way to Genesis 38, talking about Jacob and Joseph and God's purpose in the lives of these men. Let's take a look um, at Genesis 32, 24 through 29. I'm going to go ahead and read that. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. In these verses, it seems that Jacob believes that he is wrestling with God himself or possibly a messenger of God. How should we be reading this? Yeah, so the text uh, clearly speaks to us that there is a man that he's wrestling with. Right. Uh, and yet, the one that he is wrestling is also has the name of the Lord. Yes. Right? And so, uh, we see that Jacob is coming here. And it's just helpful to place this in the context of the story of Jacob. Right? That he fled uh, for safety in so many ways, uh, leaving his family in Canaan uh, to go and to live with Laban. And he received Leah and Rachel as wives. His family grew, and now he's returning to the land. If we remember the last time we saw Jacob in about this area, Genesis mm-hmm. 28, uh, he finally realized that this is the place where the God of his father was. And he then builds a pillar at that time, and he um, recognizes God, but doesn't worship him, doesn't build an altar to worship him yet. But now, as he comes back into the land, as he's coming back into the place that God has promised for his people to have an inheritance, he once again encounters God, or uh, this pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, So we certainly see that, um, that God is encountering him here. I think that's the best way to read it. Right. right, And certainly, I would place Genesis 32 and following is the place where we see the change in Jacob. Right, God has purposes for Jacob, even in the womb, before he's done anything righteous or unrighteous. God chooses Jacob to bless him. And now, God is going to be bringing that blessing into his life. By the mm-hmm. time we get to Genesis 35, we will see that the promises that were given to Abraham, passed on to Isaac, are going to be passed on to Jacob. And here, he gives to Jacob... Um, a new name, uh, a new identity, yeah. right? And it's really interesting what he does because he, uh, the Lord, makes Jacob answer the question, what is your name, right? And what does he say? He says, Jacob. But in the Hebrew, it's like deceiver, right? Yeah. liar, right? <laughs> I mean, so he's having to confess who he was in himself, and mm-hmm. now he's changing his name to Israel, one who wrestles with God, right? Which, of course, is going to be the identity of his offspring right. for the rest of the Old Testament into the New even, uh, a people who wrestle with God. Um, he also causes him to have a limp. It's really striking, right? Because he weakens him in this. I'm mm. uh, just reading through some commentaries last night with a couple other brothers in our church, th- you know, preparing for this. Uh, Calvin talked about how uh, the way in which the Lord works in his people's life is to bring them to a place of weakness mm-hmm. so that his strength can be shown through. Right? And so Jacob was always doing what he could with his own power and his own wisdom to manipulate for himself. But now he puts him to have 
pain in his body. He gives him a limp, and in that process, he weakens him so that he can bless him. Right. And I think there's just a, a lot of, of, of helpful instruction for us. All right, Genesis 37 through 50. Um, Genesis 37 makes a shift from Jacob and Esau to one of Jacob, now Israel's son, Joseph. Most of us have probably heard about the story of Joseph, but maybe we haven't thought about why it consumes so much space in the book of Genesis. Do you have any idea why so much space is allotted to Joseph? No, I don't. <laughs> and so actually that's why I went uh, this week to go talk to a friend of mine yeah. uh, who did his dissertation on Joseph. And I asked him that question. And uh, later this week, Lord willing, uh, we'll have it up online. Uh, in fact, actually, by the time we get to this, then maybe it'll be up online already. Yeah. Um, but uh, Sam Amati uh, was really helpful thinking through that. And he just brings out a number of different ways that the story of Joseph um, fulfills or resolves many of the promises that were given earlier in Genesis. Mm. So that's his answer. And I think he's probably right on that. Right, because we see in the book of Genesis this promise, or actually first the command, um, to be fruitful and multiply. Right? That goes from Adam into Noah. And then when Abraham has come to be a blessing, he's also to be fruitful and multiply. And that command comes. And then finally, and when we come to the story of Joseph, the people of Israel are in Egypt, and it becomes not a command, but it becomes a reality. Right. That they are being fruitful and multiplying in the land. And so we see that there is resolution that is taking place in the book of Genesis, and yet it's resolution that's also preparing us for the next chapter uh, that's going to bring the people of God into Israel, bring the readers into the book of Exodus, so Israel, into the book, of, into Egypt. Right? So it prepares us for the next chapter where uh, we're going to see the people of God in Egypt mm -hmm. and the Exodus that comes out of that because of the events with Joseph. And there are a few other pieces in there as well, but uh, I'll let Sam answer those questions. <laughs> I look forward to hearing that podcast. Yeah, that'll be good. For now, let's talk a, a little bit uh, more about Joseph. First, why is he such a despised figure? Genesis 37 introduces him and the hatred his brothers have for him. Why is that? Why do his brothers hate him so much? Well, if we just read Genesis 37, the way that he is introduced, right? So verse 1 um, Again, verse 2, actually, these are the generations of Jacob. Right? So mm -hmm. there's that formula that we see again. So now it's moving to the storyline of Jacob, and it leads us right into Joseph. Right. So Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So right away, maybe some of the hatred is just some of the, uh, the competition uh, yeah. that is there in the family, right, as Again, Jacob has two wives and two concubines who has 12 children with all of them. There's understandably going to be competition mm -hmm. because it was Rachel whom Jacob loved above Leah, mm -hmm. who was barren, and now Joseph is the child of Rachel. So he's, he's the golden boy. Right, yeah. right? So you can understand why perhaps his brothers would be having hatred towards him because he is receiving this golden boy status. And right. we see that all the more in verse 3 when it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. He had made him a robe with many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Right? Wow. So we see how the position that Joseph has is inviting the opposition of his brothers there. 
And of course, it goes from bad to worse, right? Because、mm-hmm. as Joseph is sent to his brothers,、uh, they say, "Okay, this is the son, the beloved son. Let's kill him, right?、Uh, or let's eventually make money off of him and let's sell him into slavery." So, in one way, it seems to be replaying the events of brothers that we saw earlier in Genesis,、mm-hmm. Cain and Abel. Yeah. Right. But in this time, Abel is not killed.、Uh, Joseph is not killed, but he is treated as dead.、Mm-hmm. But by the end of the story, what we're going to see is that the son that was mistreated is going to turn around and forgive his brothers. Right. Right. So that the one who is treated with animosity turns the other cheek, and he、uh, is gracious towards them. He forgives them. He sees what God has done. Yep. He blesses、uh, them. He blesses、yep. them. And, and in all of these ways,、uh, we see. Uh, something larger going on than just sibling rivalry. Right. Yeah. Staying in Genesis 37 for a minute and focusing on something that we find throughout the Bible, what should we make of the dreams of Joseph? We found dreams throughout the Bible. How should we think about dreams today? Two questions. Yeah. Yeah. So I think、um, one of the things that we see in the Bible is that the Lord uses dreams as a means of special revelation,、mm-hmm. right? So special revelation is the way that God communicates saving purposes to His people, right? So that begins in Genesis 12, for instance. It begins before that, but Genesis 12, where God comes to Abraham and tells him, "I'm going to bless you and bless the nations through you." That's a means of special revelation. Today, the full revelation of God for the purposes of salvation has been given to us in. The Bible, yeah, right? That's true. But before、uh, the people of God had the full sixty-six books of the Bible, God was still at work in the world,、mm-hmm. and He was communicating in various ways and various times. That's what Hebrews one says, right? Long ago, in many ways and many times, He spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But now He has spoken to us by the Son,、mm. right? So, which teaches us we have the full revelation of God in Christ and in the apostles of Christ pointing to Him. But in Genesis, for instance, we see lots of dreams because this is one of the ways that God led His people at this time. It's not only Genesis, though. Can you think of another Joseph who receives dreams? The father of Jesus. Right. Yeah. Right? right. So he also is being given dreams for the protection and preservation of God's Son and to lead Him during those times.、Mm-hmm. Right. So we see the way that God is at work in the world with these dreams, and so there are means of God to do that. So the question becomes: Okay. Is that something we should seek today, or、mm-hmm. should we expect to find that today? Right. And maybe the most credible places where we hear about this is in the mission field,、mm. right? Or Muslims who will give testimony uh, to uh, seeing a vision of Jesus or an angel coming to them, and then leads them to the Bible, and they become saved in, in the go- by the gospel.、Um, we're going to link to something called、uh, by Darren Carlson, who gives a really good perspective on this. It just reminds us that if that is true, that there are also going to be counterfeits that come as well, right? And so, for every opportunity or every dream that perhaps someone has encountered、uh, an angelic being or someone who is portraying of Jesus,、um, that there are also going to be counterfeits that are as well. He does a really、mm-hmm. good job just kind of、um, putting that together. He's actually the the head of Training Letters International,、uh, which is where Bruce Forsey is a minister as well or a staff member there. Um, but I'll just share something else.、Uh, asked this question to a friend of mine not long ago, and here's here's his response: four things to think about when it comes to dreams.、Uh, so this is from Steve Wellam. He says, one, we will know these dreams by their fruit. Yeah. Right. If they lead to saving faith, acceptance of the Scripture, following Christ, then it would seem that they are of God. 
but we must not accept these dreams as legitimate until we see the results. There are also many counterfeits. That's a general statement, but more would need to be said on that. But I think it's a good beginning place. So what is the fruit of the dream that someone is bearing witness to? Right. Right. Um, does it lead them to confidence in God's word? Or are they looking to another dream? Mm. Are they encouraging others to have dreams? Or now that they found the scriptures, are they pointing them to the gospel found in the scriptures? That's going to be telltale of the uh, of where they are. Uh, second thing, if these dreams are claiming that Jesus is appearing to them, it's problematic. In the ascension, Jesus has taken his human nature out of this realm from the earth, mm-hmm. gone through the heavens, and is now located at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly place, heavenly places. And so his bodily return won't come until the end of the age. Right. right? So if someone says that Jesus has appeared to them bodily, well, it goes beyond what we know about where he is dwelling today, right? Mm-hmm. Seated at God's right hand, he sends his spirit, he sends the word of God, he sends the, the gospel through the church, but he himself um, in his body mm-hmm. is present in heaven until that final day. Right? We might think of uh, Acts 9 maybe as a counterexample to that, where Paul himself encounters the risen Christ. Um, and yet, what happens with Paul? He becomes an apostle. He right. has seen Jesus. And so, if someone claims today that they've seen bodily Jesus Christ, like, well, then they would almost have to have the, the identification of being an apostle. Right, yeah. right, With revelation that has been given to them. That would be something more like Joseph Smith in the beginning of the Mormon mm. church. Right? But obviously that's not taking place today. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Um, and if these dreams are sent from him, it would be an angelic experience uh, or a vision. It wouldn't be the bodily form of Christ right. is there. So when you say, uh, when you use the word counterfeit, do you mean as a misinterpretation of a dream or that um, a different or even maybe possibly a demonic yeah. um I think it could be either one, right? Mm -hmm. So certainly scripture speaks of Satan um, as one who cloaks himself or disguises himself as an angel of light, right? And what would be a better way Mm. for the works of Satan and his cohort of demonic angels to deceive the church or to deceive, you know, lost souls than to present themselves in false ways, Right. right? I mean, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The word of Christ is what brings faith. So if somebody's looking away from those things, now they're not looking at what brings salvation and brings uh, life. They're looking right. at something else. Uh, so I think it could certainly be something demonic that is um, deceiving people. And I think there are others who are just deceived, mm. right? Who so want to experience something of God that they might fake their way into thinking through these things. Uh, I know someone who would often just kind of see different signs, right? Nothing in scripture giving foundation for that, but would see different things and patterns of things and seeing different cars and, and those became signs for him, leading him to make decisions. And ultimately he realized how fruitless that was mm-hmm. and thankfully turned away from that back to the word of God. So I think just the last thing I, I would want to say is that uh, if these dreams are true, it's the exception, it's not the norm. Right. right. The norm today is knowing God through the Word of God and the faithful teaching of the Word of God. The work of the Spirit comes through the Word. The Spirit has inspired the Word. So we don't need to go outside of the Bible looking for dreams. Rather, we need to look to the Scriptures. But perhaps in some unusual ways in places where the Word of God is making inroads, the Gospel is just coming, uh, maybe there would be some dreams in uh, 
Muslim contexts that are leading them to the word. Right. But if it's not leading them to the word, it's working outside of the word. Say, yeah, that's not the way under the new covenant that the gospel goes forward. Yeah. Yes. I like the way you answered that because that was actually my first thought is that if it's not in line with the word is the way I was thinking yeah. of it in my head, then we have a problem right there. That's exactly you know? right. But not only that, not only dreams, I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but mm -hmm. when people tell you that they've heard a word from the Lord, yeah. Yeah. you know, we also in the same manner need to be very careful yep. um, of that. And again, I think we need to use the same criteria that we would use with a dream. Because uh, I, I, Again, I would say that would be an encounter, mm -hmm. um, just not necessarily through a dream, or could be yep. that they're saying that. And, and I would say there are probably more than two categories, but there are two kind of categories that I can think of when someone says that they heard something from God, mm -hmm. right? One of them is they actually believe that God speaks in those ways and speaks directly to them. Mm -hmm. I think scripture just gives us testimony to say, no, God speaks to us through his word. The spirit speaks through his word. The spirit inspired the word and the word is bearing witness to Christ and that God speaks to us today through his word. Right. The other is I think it's just um, using language imprecisely. Mm -hmm. Right, as they are walking through their day, they remember something. It points them back to the Bible, and they say that God spoke to them that way. Well, no, by God's kindness, there is a, a reminder of those things. God is providential in bringing those things to mind. It's not as though that God's outside of the equation, but it's very different than saying that He spoke to me in a way similar to Joseph or Jacob or. Um, Abraham. Mm -hmm. In fact, with Joseph, we have no testimony that God spoke to him in that way. Right, yeah. Right? I mean, interestingly, so he has these dreams of his brothers who are going to bow down to him, mm -hmm. but not as though God is speaking to him like he did with Abraham. In fact, we see that a uh, with Joseph, God seems to disappear. Mm -hmm. Right? He is sent out of the land. Right, he yeah. goes to Egypt. We know from the testimony of Moses in Genesis that God is with him. But for Joseph, he is being tested, the Psalms say, by the word of God. Mm. He remembers the things that he grew up hearing in his father's house, the promises that are there. But how could he receive those when he's outside of the land and imprisoned, and yet God is working all these things for his good? Right. And so I think our encounter is much more similar to Joseph, who we're not going to have a direct encounter with God. It's through the Word. Right. It's from the things that we have heard, the things we have stored up in our hearts, and walking in faith in that way. So I shouldn't expect a burning bush when I walk outside? Uh, not unless you light it on fire. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as we're introduced to Joseph in Genesis 37, focus turns to Judah. Why is that? Yeah, so whenever we find um, episodes like this in the Bible of one character placed next to another, mm -hmm. it's likely that the reason for that is a contrast, right? Mm. So it seems as though Moses is not just going off topic here. Uh, it's not like reading Twitter where one tweet goes one way and one goes another, mm -hmm. right? But rather, there's an intentional contrast between Joseph and Judah. I think that Genesis is so much like a soap opera. Right. Right, because in Genesis 30... Eight, you have Judah and Tamar, mm -hmm. where Judah's sons are given to Tamar. They die, right? right? And then Onan is supposed to um, have a child with Tamar. He fails in that. He's killed. And then Judah promises <laughs> another child right, to, yeah. to Tamar. Never, never does, mm -hmm. right? So what does she do? She cloaks herself as a prostitute. Yeah. Judah sees her. He comes into her, they have a child, she's now found great with child, he's going to burn her to death, mm -hmm. right? And then she says, hey, uh, whose are these? That's right. Yeah. right? This yep. pledge that was given to him. 
and it exposes Judah. Like we know from the scripture because the story got out, mm -hmm. right, that Judah did this wicked thing. Right? So there's a kind of sexual immorality that is there, and yet in the story, it also tells us how Judah, through Perez, is going to be the father of Hezron, and it keep going, it goes to David and then to Jesus. Right, yeah. right? So Tamar shows up in Matthew chapter 1, right, in the genealogy of Jesus. So on one hand, we should just be encouraged when we read Genesis 38 that this mess of a story can result in something good. Right? Right. It takes generation upon generation for that goodness to happen, but like God is not absent in this. Right? And so this terrible mess turns out well. Yeah. But the other contrast is that in Genesis 39, we see Joseph, who uh, is actually pursued by Potiphar's wife, mm -hmm. right, to have a sexual encounter there, and he flees, right. he turns away. And in his righteousness, he's rewarded, right? Mm hmm. With, no, no, no. He's, he's in prison. <laughs> he's, 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 he's well, rewarded. later he's rewarded, yeah, but he's, he's rewarded prison, yeah. for thirteen years in prison. <laughs> yeah, right. right. So the righteous son of Israel is thrown into prison. Right. The unrighteous son of Israel, Judah, gets off scot free. Right. Right. Nothing bad happens to him. So we see this contrast between uh, two. Uh, opportunities for either sexual morality or sexual immorality, and Joseph is proven to be the one who is moral versus um, Judah who is not. So there's just all kinds of instruction that is there. It also begins to explain how this righteous son, Joseph, doing what is right, holding fast to the word of God, why he is going to be exalted. Right. So later on in the Bible, it is always going to speak of the way that the throne is established in righteousness. And so Joseph becomes the one who is at the second place in Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. He who is humbled is going to be exalted. He will be the means of blessing to his brothers and to all of the world, I will even say, because of his placement there. And what becomes striking then is the oddity that at the end, in Genesis 49, Judah is promised uh, the scepter. He's mm. promised the kingdom. Yet, he's promised the kingdom in a very unique way. It says in Genesis 49 that his brothers will come and bow down to him, which is a lot like Joseph. Right. Because now it's almost a saying that Judah is going to have a, messia a Messiah to come, a son to come, who is like Joseph. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to see the way in which Judah and Joseph continue to overlap, both in the book of Genesis and later on as well, because Joseph receives the double portion, right? So when the Levites are taken out of the inheritance, right? Their inheritance is to serve in the presence of God. We're going to see the replacement tribe is the second son of Joseph. Right? So Joseph has two plots of ground in the land to come. Right? Ephraim and Manasseh, they receive that. And in that way, in so many ways, he's the greatest mm -hmm. of the sons that are there. And yet, Psalm 78 is going to come along and say that because of his wickedness and the wickedness that takes place in Shiloh later on with the priests, there at the tabernacle, remember Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. We'll get to that in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But when their wickedness takes place, God is going to move his house from Shiloh to Jerusalem. Mm. 
and he's going to choose that place with the tribe of David to be the place where the priesthood and the temple is going to dwell in the kingly line of David, mm-hmm. and it's going to bring that back in. So I think just to say for now, there's going to be an ongoing back and forth, uh, starting in Genesis all the way through between Judah and Joseph, and this just trains us to keep our eyes on that. When I read the story of Judah this week, yeah, I was in... You know what struck me? Not so much the story itself. I remember thinking to myself, the nature of us has not changed. The nature of man. And I just looked at um, what uh, Tamar did and what Judah did and uh, what he tried to do. Um, You know, it was just so much, like you said, a soap opera um, is, is the right word. And the interesting thing about the Bible that I've always thought is, if I was going to write a book I think I may have said this to you before, but mm-hmm. if I was going to write a book and I was going to try and convince people that this is the right way to go, yeah. um, I would take all my imperfections out. <laughs> but the Bible, it doesn't do that. Yeah. It, just, it, it clearly points to the need of why we need Jesus because yeah. it doesn't hide our imperfections. Yeah. You know, it shows us, um, when I say us, I mean people mm-hmm. in the best and the worst situations. And it shows how we very often, like you brought up, how it shows the the contrast between Judah, I mean Judah and Joseph, and mm-hmm. how two different people handled a similar situation or yeah. an opportunity to yeah. be immoral, and it's just it, I see it every day in our, in our lives. You know, we have to yeah. make those decisions right. um, of where we're going to go, what we're going to do, what we're going to watch, what we're going to listen to, how yeah. we're going to speak, and yep. it's just amazing to me when I read the Bible, and and I just see the same need for Jesus back then yeah. as as we need today. It's just. Yeah, I mean, one way that we can always make connections to the Old Testament is the fact that there is a fallen condition focus Mm -hmm. in the Old Testament. Say, okay, how does this, in Egypt, so long ago, the riding camels, it's like so different, and yet, just as you said, right, there's a a sinfulness and a fallenness Mm -hmm. that is the same. Right, right? And if we can see that fallenness in them, and how God redeems them and is so gracious to them, it encourages us that when we see the fallenness and the sinfulness in our own hearts, that God can redeem us and be kind to us too. I'm sure you've heard people say things such as, oh, that the Bible's old, you know, <laughs> we got to get with the times. Yeah. You know, true technology has changed, but, you know, as, as the Bible illustrates, we have not. No, we right. may have better tools to be wicked with. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's, it's, you know things that make it easier, but um, our hearts have not changed. So big picture, is there anything else we might keep in mind as we read the Joseph story? Yeah, I think one just key thing in the book of the beginnings, right? So Genesis means in the beginning, in the beginnings, um, is the way that these stories are going to prepare us Mm -hmm. for the rest of the Bible, right? We can't read these stories detached. It's not just that they're moral nuggets that we then directly apply to ourselves, but they're preparing the way Uh, for what's going to happen in Exodus, and then Mm. Leviticus, and then Deuteronomy, and then the rest of the Old Testament, finally to Jesus Christ. Uh, And so seeing the relationship between Judah and Joseph helps us to be ready to read the story of Israel, and then the story of Israel that leads us to Jesus. As you follow along with the reading plan, if you come up with any questions that you might like to ask David, please send them to viaemmaus at obc.org. You may hear your response in an upcoming episode. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode 
and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word. Visit obc.org.